mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Welcome to Life and Art from FT Weekend. This is our Friday chat show. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Today, we're talking about The Curse, a new drama series from Benny Safdie and Nathan Fielder, which dropped on Paramount Plus today and drops tomorrow in the UK. Joining me from London is the FT's assistant arts editor, Rebecca Watson. She is also a novelist. She wrote the novel Little Scratch, which was recently made into a play. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. Also with us is FT columnist and notorious resident film buff, Stephen Bush. Hi, Stephen. Hiya. Thank you both for being here. Okay, I'm going to kick things off by introducing the show to listeners, uh, starting with the fact that the episodes of The Curse will be releasing week by week, and we are under strict orders to only discuss the very first episode of the show this week, but it will be informed by maybe having watched a little more. Uh, The plot as of episode one is basically this. Emma Stone and Nathan Fielder are a married couple who are filming a pilot for a new HGTV show in which they flip houses in a low-income town called Española in New Mexico. They're angling it as house flipping meets philanthropy. Uh, horribly, it's called flipanthropy. And the goal is to, quote, ethically gentrify. Um, of course, this couple is wealthy and out of touch and doesn't seem to be helping anyone at all. And cringe and discomfort ensues. Rebecca, Stephen, before I go on, how did I do? <laughs> I'm curious if I missed anything. I think that was pretty good, actually. I think you smashed it. Yeah, that was very comprehensive. <laughs> Can somebody <laughs> describe the curse itself very briefly? Yes. So about halfway or a third of the way through the first episode, um, oh, I'm actually already just feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> um, so Asher, Nathan Fielder's character, he offers... $100 to a little girl who's selling like cans of Sprite, mm-hmm. um, which is all this is all filmed and it's basically just content for his TV show. But as soon as they've got the cut, he asks for the money back or indeed snatches it back. <laughs> um, and she, in response, looks at him and there's this simmering music underneath and she goes, I curse you. <laughs> right. And he asks for it back because he wanted to give her 20 bucks or something. And so he's suggesting that he's going to break the hundred for a 20 and go back. Yeah, exactly. You know, he'll he'll be generous, but, you know, a hundred's <laughs> a little bit too much. Um, yeah. And so that's sort of, I mean, who knows if that is truly the curse that they're talking about, but that sort of encapsulates the type of thing that happens, uh, the moral ambiguity. Um, I thought we would start by talking about the show and its themes. Stephen, what did you think? I mean, I, I, I'd like to be invited back, so I don't want to be this person who said, oh, thank, thanks for having me on the show. By the way, I hated it, but I, I'm afraid <laughs> I did. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I realize I, I kind of resent a lot of prestige TV because, as you say, I love films, and I'm afraid I tend to, particularly when it's streaming and you can see the timer, start to think, oh, I could have watched two-thirds of Past Lives again by the end <laughs> of the... Well, and, and actually, I kept comparing it to another much better Safdie Brothers-produced film, Funny mm-hmm. Pages, mm-hmm. Um, and thinking, you know, actually, I think across the incredibly, I mean, this is, 
the first episode is is is, is particularly blo- well actually it's all particularly bloated but it's like okay there is a a 90 minute film somewhere within this right. that you could very easily make and you know i mean often opening episodes are overly mannered particularly when they're pilots but obviously this is a prestige bit of telly with some huge names behind it so there is i think no excuse for mm. an opening episode than is quite this and now we're going to move at the pace of a snail. Um, <laughs> and just we're going to reiterate for the people in the audience who've perhaps been concussed that these people <laughs> wow. are, are a bit out of their debt. Interesting. Did, Rebecca, did you did you feel that way too? Did, what did you think? <laughs> I don't think anyone feels as much hate. <laughs> I know. Now I'm, I'm, I'm scared to admit that I kind of liked it. Yeah, I know. You, go ahead. Um, I, well, listen, so I thought there was bagginess. But I did enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. It's a kind of simmering show, isn't it? Rather than a rather than something that kind of boils up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that pace feels like about the sense of disquiet, you know, just like humming along. And there's this feeling of trouble just ahead. This feeling of escalation just ahead. Mm-hmm. And you know, it is a it is a um, a comedy designed mainly through discomfort I mean it's not really a comedy I think that's that's just incorrect as a definition of the show but like mm-hmm. all of the comedy any any of its sense of comedy is of making you feel uncomfortable is of making you wince is of making you have to witness these irritating imperfect yet still trying people yeah. um but I did think it was pretty well shot the visuals of it were really interesting like mm-hmm. it's really designed to feel as if you're surveying and everything is kind of shown through like a window or through obstruction. So you always feel like you're listening in, which I think really adds to the kind of edge of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, it's funny, Stephen, now that you've said it's baggy, I can't unsee all the ways in which it's baggy. But I actually kind of liked it. Uh, I didn't mind being in, in the world of how horrible these people were. Like, Knowing they're bad people, <laughs> but really not knowing, like, I, I was struggling to understand why they were the way they were or, like, what it was coming from and ha- what my judgment of them really was. I, I I liked that. Yeah, and so much of what we witness is, like, them being led. Like, I feel like they're really tapping into the psyche of how easy it is to push people. So, for example, um, there are various scenes with the producer played by Benny Safdie, and in fact, the first scene is this man is being interviewed who has been helped to find a job that he only needs because his rent is higher because they're gentrifying his neighborhood. <laughs> um, and uh, his sick mother is sitting next to him on the sofa. And she does not look that moved by the idea of her son having been given a job. And mm-hmm. the producer is obviously not happy with the effect. And so he just comes over and says, you know what, I think we're going to get some water for your eyes. We're just going to flick some water in your face. Uh, he sort yeah, of pours he- water into her eyes so it looks like she's crying of gratefulness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you can see the couple feeling uncomfortable witnessing this and that they want to stop it. But they just don't know how. And mm-hmm. he tells them that, you know, it's it's normal. This is protocol. This is what you do in TV shows. And it's just that kind of insidious thing where a certain kind of person would be like, all right, well, I've been told otherwise, so I'll sit back and let it happen. Yeah, yeah. Stephen, I feel you quietly. <laughs> quietly seething, yeah. Um, seething, yeah, yeah. Tell so, us more. So I think, for me, the thing which didn't work is partly um, that you have these... Uh, than other than the main characters, the fictional people they bounce off against are 
very thinly drawn and they are there to make some kind of point, mm -hmm. which in addition to the fact that the point I felt was belaboured and then belaboured some more, mm -hmm. um, it, it also grated with me specifically because not to sound, you know, like a Gen Zer, but it <laughs> feels like these characters are often sort of ciphers. It's like, oh, you know, like, oh, so the girl who, who kisses him is a spins wheel of archetype machine, a <laughs> black girl who is clearly meant to be an immigrant from non-specified African country. Right. And, oh, and this character is a spins wheel, a person who's been displaced, who has one, you know, like, it does kind of feel a bit like a sort of like list of a protected characteristic um, bingo. Yeah. So just so to make sure that I understand. So in The Curse, they are satirizing how uh, these two wealthy white people are coming into this community and the way that wealthy white people often think about low-income communities or, or communities of, of color immigrants. And in order to satirize them, they're actually just making all of the characters who are members of the community extremely flat. Yeah, I would say that, that essentially, yeah, all, all of the characters they come into contact with are with maybe one exception, there to service the joke right. uh, about these people. So, you know. Yeah. Okay. You might m be making me change my opinion about <laughs> this TV show. <laughs> so I want to talk about Nathan Fielder's other work a little bit. Um, of course, this whole thing is these meta series and documentaries that are meant to get you to question reality TV. His first show is called Nathan For You, uh, could one of you explain it in a sentence? Um, yeah. So Nathan For You is like a prank reality TV show. So Nathan Fielder pretends that he is like a business consultant there to help independent businesses, like give them some advice. Mm -hmm. And he goes in and interviews them. And then he essentially gives them dreadful advice. Right. But in such convincing and slightly manipulative way, they essentially agree they go along with it um and that then you know chaos ensues it's really funny as well by the way it's also really ethically should we say curious sure yeah we can say curious um <laughs> let's explain the rehearsal and then we can talk about why all of these things are so ethically curious his most recent show was called The Rehearsal. It was a very weird show. It's unclear whether it was real or fake. That's a big question on Google. Is The Rehearsal real? Um, basically, it took people who were quite anxious about an upcoming conversation, like confronting a friend, and then Nathan created an exact replica of where that conversation would happen and then have them rehearse it multiple times. Um, do you guys have watched some of the rehearsal, at least in Nathan for you? What would you say are the through lines between those shows and the curse? So I think the thing which is, um, yeah, I mean, as listeners may have picked up on, I didn't, I didn't think the curse was very good. But I think where it's analytically fascinating is it is I think having this really interesting conversation with Nathan for you and the rehearsal in the essentially all of the things that a TV savvy viewer can guess are happening behind the scenes in those two shows, we see satirized on screen in The Curse, right? So there's a famous and I think very funny episode of Nathan for You where he persuades a struggling frozen yogurt shop to make a poo flavored right. yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm five years old. And, um, <laughs> and 
there's a bit where he has a confrontation with a business consultant he brings in where you can kind of tell that the, the business consultant has been riled up either on the air or there's a bit that's missing because the consultant goes from mildly annoyed to very annoyed in a way which you can kind of tell it doesn't quite match what we see on screen, but it's very funny and it works very well. Mm-hmm. And so then when you see, you know, the producer going, oh, well, I'll just put water on her eyes so she looks like she's crying. You go, ah, I wonder if maybe there's something to be said here about some of the the scenes um, that we saw in Nathan Few or some of the kind of obviously hyper-real aspects of the rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And so it, the thing which is interesting about it is that the curse kind of doubles as a damning satire on the author's earlier work yeah. and, in the case of rehearsal, current work. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think the main the connection is just like obviously Nathan Fielder's obsession with kind of, I guess, like the malleability of yeah. people. And it's I think it's really about that kind of psychology um, and also just generally about everything we're scared of happening or, or witnessing. It's just mm-hmm. all the feelings of kind of societal discomfort, even just the sense of a stranger, right? Of not trusting what a stranger might say or mm-hmm. what they might do. It's just all of those kind of dynamics that just play out. Um, and, you know, his his main thing is just pushing, right? It's yeah. stretching these things to the limits. And as the viewer, this becomes more and more uncomfortable and also hilarious in its kind of, yeah, in its terror. Yeah, yeah. I felt like Nathan for you and the rehearsal, I really had trouble watching those. Like I just actually didn't like it and I turned it off a lot and I don't mean to sound prude about it, but there was something about it that I just felt like Nathan Fielder was making fun of these people and Nathan for you, it was like this smart guy trying to do this meta thing like for intellectual viewers, but actually like he was kind of misleading people to get them on his show and then tricking them into over-revealing, and I didn't like that. And in the rehearsal, it felt weird to me because he was, like, trying to get to some deeper humanity, maybe, but he was encouraging people to be more anxious about a social situation, like, almost to inhabit his anxiety. Uh, And I didn't like that either. I felt like that didn't help anyone. And, you know, I, I guess I felt in the curse if I was going to have to be into Nathan Fielder and this thing that he's doing that everyone's all excited about, then I felt at least relieved to know that this was like a fully fiction show that I could relax and watch and I didn't have to worry for the people in it. That said, I I don't, you know, I do feel like it did seem like he's trying to atone for his sins in, in The Curse because it's like the show is about what it's fair to put people through on reality TV. Yeah, I mean, I think so yeah, this is where I, I, you know, I really am talking out both sides of my mouth here. But the thing, that, the thing which you're, you're exactly right though about the problem with it, and then ultimately, the the thing about Nathan for you that to me makes it funny, but also makes it from a moral perspective basically indefensible, mm-hmm. is that people without who are worried about money are um, willing to abase themselves if you push them. You know, it, it's a bit like hey, it's entertaining watching, you know unarmed Christians fight lions, but we don't put that on TV anymore. Rebecca, what do you what do you think? I I think it's interesting because I have to say, I am a big fan of Sasha Baron Cohen. Mm-hmm. And he is doing something very similar to Nathan yes. Fielder. Um so I mean Sasha Baron Cohen is probably best known by his characters, i.e. 
Borat yeah. <laughs> and Ali G. Yeah. Um, and his approach is essentially insinuating himself into situations where people will believe these character roles he's playing in order to unveil their own prejudices and biases. Mm-hmm. But it's done by creating pretty offensive characters that people completely believe that he is. Mm-hmm. But I think the difference between that and Nathan Fielder, i.e. Nathan Fee particularly, is that Baron Cohen is punching up rather than down. The people that he's trying to kind of unveil are those in positions of power and uh, prejudice. Right. So make fun of politicians and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. Um, and I can, I totally find Nathan for you funny. It's just the, the kind of question of whether it should really exist. Yeah. Um. There's one more thing I really want to touch on, which is that uh, The Curse, uh, it sort of considers itself genre-bending. That's how it markets itself. And we can talk about what the ways in which it is, but really, it's like, it's decisively quite an uncomfortable show. And uh, it made me think about how many other shows there have been recently that have had this similar effect, like unpleasant viewing with people who aren't even morally ambiguous, but mostly seem kind of like bad people. Like I'm thinking about Succession and about White Lotus. And uh, these shows are getting made and they're obviously resonating. And I'm kind of curious about whether we're comfortable with that. Yeah, I I think it definitely is something that's more prominent at the moment. Um, I mean, obviously, like the White Lotus and Succession are two classic hit examples of that um, sort of send ups of privilege of bad intention yeah it, it feels a bit as if drama or fiction basically is, is like a safe space to enjoy badness and I don't know I don't know why that is um mm-hmm. I have theories partly to do with like culture wars and stuff and a kind of wariness of what we can say um but if we put kind of things in the mouths of people who are objectively bad and we all agree are bad suddenly we're kind of freer with that mm, yeah I mean I think so I guess I have my own theory about, yeah, I mean, visibly what this is, is a satire of a certain type of American progressive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for a variety of reasons, at the moment, lots of people who want to make that type of show feel they have to cloak it in X degrees of irony in order to get away with making it. Right. So, I mean, all, all comedy takes place at some kind of edge, right? Like whether mm-hmm. it's an edge of kind of... An embarrassing disease or, you know, a cut of a suit and makes someone look like they're, you know, pleased. Um, the the difference is, is that at the moment, a lot of comedy is playing with that social edge, which I think is partly about the fact that as more and more of your life is spent online, you just are more surveilled. So yeah. people feel that they have to curate more what they say. Yeah. Um, this is a couple, like almost everyone, who a large part of how they are encountered by, you know, not just their friends, but the people who buy their goods and services, is this public persona they kind of have to create whether they want to or not. And I think that is the other the other thing that um, these comedies are playing with. Um, because we live in this world where you're continually surveyed by your peers and whatnot, um, it means that the comedy that people are preoccupied by, I think, is necessarily a kind of comedy of manners. Right. And it's also like, I mean, like what we're talking about currently, I mean, none of, none of these are kind of directly comedies, right? They're, they're comedy 
comic dramas. Like I'm I'm trying to think now of an example of a comedy, a current comedy, where the show's material is like predominantly in service of like laughter, which is what like right. a true comedy is, right? Where the material is all rounding, it's kind of lassoing the laugh. And it's always just about to get that laughter track. And I think, I don't know, I feel like we're talking about much heavier things. We're talking about shows that are simultaneously trying to set out uh, the politics of the day um, or give us a kind of proper illustration of what it is to look at like a privileged family or mm-hmm. these are kind of like big context laden environments that you have to get the laughs out of once you've set up the the premise quite severely. Yeah. Um, I, I feel quite frustrated at the moment like about TV and about the laughs you know like I'd really like something that's just like really just unabashedly hilarious just like really (laughs) going for it really like taking the risk and I think it is the risk that's missing it's a a bit too much to commit to the bit you know yeah I suspect that what's happening in tv comedy is -hmm. that um the hump you have to get over it in order to be made and continue to be successful is now quite high because Mm -hmm. um you know now, what is the number one comedy enjoyed by teenagers today? It's Still Friends. Still Friends. And, and I yeah. think that is in of itself having a kind of suffocating effect on new pure comedy. Mm-hmm. I think then, yeah, then the fact that Friends will always, well, almost certainly always be available to stream, um, that Malcolm in the Middle will always be available to stream, except in these pure comedies, you know, like, you know, Curb will always be available to stream. That I think also has a culturally um, stultifying effect in its way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Stephen and Rebecca, this has been so fun and eye-opening, and I've changed a lot of my opinions in the process. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Thank you both so much. Uh, We will be back in just a moment for a segment called More or Less. Okay, Welcome back for More or Less, the part of the show where each of us gives one thing we want more of or less of culturally. Stephen, what do you got? I want more of shows and films where, with the child actors, what they do, instead of getting them to kind of like sit with a script and do that very, I'm going to enunciate painfully into the screen. If we're going to have to have another money-spinning Harry Potter reboot, couldn't, (laughs) couldn't we this time like just get them to... Yeah, I mean, they've got the money and the time to do it. Like, actually get them to act as children. And there are so many great examples of films like that. Scrapper, this brilliant new British film, is one. Playground, which is this brilliant kind of horror story, basically. You know, it's a, just an everyday story of a playground, where a lot of it is done via improv. In both cases, what they do very well, I think, is they use the younger actors very sparingly in a way that doesn't force them to either act in a contrived, cute way or in a kind of weirdly unnatural way. And I think it's just a brilliant way of bringing the best out of young actors. Oh, I love that. So young actors being more like themselves. Rebecca, what about you? I like that as well. And After Sun's a great example as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this is a dangerous one because everyone participates in this trend, including my friends and family. But it's time to say it. And this is the moment to <laughs> seize. I want less of Birkenstocks. What? I'm fed up of them. <laughs> they're ugly. Ugh. They're everywhere. And they've just been like copy and pasted onto everyone's feet. And I don't understand why. Um, wow. But yeah, I just think it's an example of the eradication of choice. Wow. Mic okay. drop. 
Mic drop. Yeah, I don't even know how to respond. I'm going to have to think about this and whether you're allowed on the show again, because <laughs> what would I do without my Birkenstocks? Okay, my recommendation is to go see more local comedy. Um, I realized the other day that this time last year, I was writing a piece about comedians in New York, and I was going to see comedy Basically every night. And it was like, great. The people were brilliant. It's one of the cheapest things that you can do near you that's live. And it feels really good to laugh with a bunch of strangers. And uh, I'm not doing it anymore. And so I bought a cheap ticket to see this comedian that I really like tonight. Her name is Rachel Colley. She's hilarious. And that's my tip. More live comedy. Get out there. We should laugh more. It's good for us. I like that. That's very nice. Thanks. Stephen, Rebecca, this is a total delight. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Life and Art from FT Weekend. I really recommend you go check out the show notes. We have so much in there. We've got links to everything we talked about. You can see where you can read Stephen's daily politics newsletter and Rebecca's novel. We also have discount codes if you want a subscription to the FT. And we have ways to keep in touch with me and with the show on email, X, formerly Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my talented team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer, and our global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. Have a lovely weekend, and we'll find each other again on Monday.